We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Sock Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hi and welcome to Sat Talk Radio. I'm Joe Quinn and my co-hosts this week are Neil Bradley and Pierre Lascoudron. Hello. Hi there. This week we are talking about a hot topic. Uh, you probably know what it is. It's the one that's all over the media and newspapers and you know social media sites, etc. It's um, well, there's maybe a few of them, but the one we're talking about is Israel and Palestine, the ongoing. Uh, some people say war, but let's say, from my perspective, the ongoing slaughter in Palestine at the hands of Israel. Um, the other topics that we might get into later on a little bit are obviously the ongoing situation in Ukraine, vis-a-vis, uh, or as it relates to Russia and uh, the Ukrainian government and the U.S. and the new Cold War, as it's being talked about officially now. By U.S. military men, specifically referring to the Cold War. But Israel, Israel, Palestine. Um, title of our show this week is Israel: Global Pariah or Promised Land. Now, people who are listening are probably aware of our take on this particular situation. Um, maybe there's some people out there who are listening for the first time or haven't uh, listened in before uh, or don't know much about us and uh, maybe they uh, think this is going to be a kind of an open-ended uh, balanced BBC news type debate uh, <laughs> finding the happy mean it's exactly it's right. not going to be that uh, it but it is going to be unbiased in the sense of um it's not going to engage in uh, it's not going to, not going to involve uh, lies or disinformation or uh, paramoralisms or kind of psychopathic speak or rationale. Um, it's going to involve the, as close as possible the truth of the situation. And some people call that bias, but that's just from their perspective. We're talking from as close to an objective perspective as possible, uh, i.e. the truth of the situation. But having said all that, um, just to try and make it a bit more balanced or at least to to uh, provide the other side of the argument, Pierre is going to um, has taken on the difficult role of presenting at least the kind of Israeli side of things and essentially what the Israeli government, Israeli spokespeople, and probably most Jews and quite a lot of people in Western countries actually think about the situation, what they think is going on, yeah. just as a as a means to, as I said presenting that narrative so we can discuss it and to see if there is anything uh, valid or truthful about it and if there is we'll obviously recognize that if not we'll provide the alternatives yeah I will play the devil's advocate or Israel advocate is it really different Uh, we will see that later in any case it's a painful but uh, interesting exercise because during this show we won't have this biased pro-Israeli version that is spread by mainstream media we will use the same arguments, but we will take time to 
synchronize them to develop an objective assessment of those arguments and to give what lies deserve, the truth. And maybe we can start with the, the core matter because it's rather pathetic when you start deconstructing, deconstructing the Israeli rhetoric. You conclude that there is basically one central argument. There are many secondary arguments, but there is one single central argument. It goes this way. Usually you have the Israeli mouthpiece, the hand on the heart, that says, look at Hamas, terrorist organization. They don't say activist or resistance, too positive. The terrorists for Hamas, they're firing rockets at us on Israeli territory, hundreds a day on our children, emotional uh, streak here, on our children. If terrorists were firing rockets at your children, what would you do? That's a case, a simple case of legitimate defense. We are defending ourselves from the terrorists and we are protecting our children. So, yeah, what do you answer to uh, this very moving and convincing argument? Well, until this Operation Protective Edge was launched, I would have responded in the way I have done in recent years until this conflict with the argument that, but hang on, your response is disproportionate. And look, the numbers don't lie. The amount of people killed in Gaza or the West Bank versus those killed in Israel is extremely disproportionate. However, since this particular conflict, current conflict began, I realize, well, I'm wondering, are there even any Hamas rockets being fired at all? I ask this because you would think there is a lot of propaganda value for Israel to be able to rebroadcast to the international media footage of Hamas rockets being fired, flying through the air, landing and causing injury and death within Israel proper. But I haven't seen anything. If you check uh, YouTube, you have some videos with titles like uh, Hamas rocket over Israel or Iron Dome intercepting Hamas rockets. And sometimes there are footages as well of uh, post-rocket impact scenes where you have a few Israeli uh, citizen injured in the street and there's some smoke or so there seem to be some video yeah. evidence indeed um, there have been a few certainly a few explosions of some kind going off since I asked the question and included it in a recent self-focus somebody has said look this send me a link and it does look to be a rocket landing in Israel, I laugh because the footage shows what appears to be a very small explosion at the at the base of a tree in a park somewhere in Israel. And the only movement or reaction to it, the only terror experience was a cat that was in the tree that ran out of it. Um, so... Um, uh, okay, you say that... Before this uh, operation, this ongoing operation, your point on the, the way you analyzed this uh, rocket issue was different. So you thought there were rockets, massive amount of rockets. Uh, how would you have justified 
the fact that uh, Hamas is firing rockets on uh, Israel territory, because obviously violence is not the only solution. Look at Gandhi and what negotiation and diplomacy can do. It can do wonders. So why falling into uh, terrorism and uh, violence? Well, uh, Joe here has been following these conflicts a lot longer than I have. Every time a new operation is launched in Gaza, he's tracked them and he's given people a timeline of events that is not disputed now. It's not a contradictory. It's the timeline according to official sources. And you, you, you see that the provocator, the provocation in all cases, uh, was either Israel confirmed or if it was not actually confirmed, it's very, very dubious as to who started the fight. In other words, Hamas would say, for example, uh, well, we don't dispute that something happened on our end, but it was news to us. We learned of it through your media. We certainly didn't order this. And this is a repeating, a recurring theme. So here you're getting a bit conspirational and you're implying that... Uh Hamas or Palestinian territories are infiltrated by some Israeli agents that would fire rockets on Israel in order to give legitimacy to disproportionate uh, retaliation? Well, our sources for that are Yasser Arafat, uh, Fatah party leaders, uh, Hamas party leaders, very well-respected international observers like Richard Falk, UN Human rights, top chief, I think. I don't know if he's still in that position. Um, so these are quote unquote conspiracy theories touted by some people who know what they're talking about. Oh, one last thing. Going back to the Iron Dome footage, I do acknowledge, I've seen the Iron Dome in action. If there's one kind of media presentation difference this time around, there's two things that we've seen that are new one is iron dome you know lots of video of it uh, sirens going off in israel uh people have the cameras ready or there are cameras like cctv cameras on the street corners that pick up the footage sirens go off one or two usually two i think they fire a pair of rockets yeah, yeah. up and they seem to do a spiral sort of spiral motion and then Poof. Now, people are being told what they're seeing is Iron Dome missiles in, uh, interfering, interacting, inter, what's the word? Uh, intercepting incoming Hamas rockets. But whether it's daytime footage or nighttime footage, you never see the other rocket that's supposed to be coming in. Which has me wondering if they are not just setting off Iron Dome, sirens, rockets go up, poof, and that's it. To give the impression that they are actually being under attack at that moment. It seems to be the logical conclusion. I mean, Hamas has gone from, it seems, actually having some kind of weaponry to use to having very, very weak homemade rockets in more recent conflicts to this conflict where they seem to have Nothing. So it would be all pure theater at this point from Israel. 
they must have a few weapons because uh, today I think the death toll on the Israeli, on the Palestinian side, I think uh, it reached uh, almost 1,000. On the Israeli side, it reached 40. So I suppose yeah, that soldiers who are in Gaza. And a few civilians. Uh, last time I checked, it was uh, two civilians. Yeah, two civilians were supposedly killed by, uh, by Hamas rockets uh, in the past few weeks before the ground offensive. But yeah, and one of those was at ERS crossing, which is the main entrance into Gaza. So Hamas rocket lands at the wall. But, uh, yeah, just on the, <clears throat> on the idea that the question or the claim by the Israelis that uh, what would the world do or any country in the world do if they're being fired, they're being attacked by, uh, by rockets, uh, that, that's kind of a, it's a, it's pretty disingenuous because <clears throat> it's too far on in the narrative, you know. It establishes a, a, a kind of a scenario that further down the actual sequence of events, uh, if you want to um, present the, the situation of look at what's happening to us, you have to present the whole situation and why what is happening to us is happening to us, you know. You can't just say this is happening to us, it's a... Uh, you have to present the whole picture, and the whole picture is that, um, if, you know, to, uh, to provide an analogy for the rest of the world, like, you know, people of New York or people of London, for example, what would they do? Uh, the scenario should be, what would the people of London do if they were, if a large part of London was hemmed in uh, by a wall, a security fence with armed uh, towers with guards of, say, some foreign country, uh, and they were essentially prisoner, <coughs> prisoners in their own city. <clears throat> and there was an economic blockade that stopped uh, uh, most goods uh, from entering, and, uh, you know, infrastructure within London was uh, extremely poor. Uh, the water supply was virtually non-existent in terms of having clean water. There was a severe lackage of food. Uh, and of all sorts of raw materials to actually provide for a decent standard of living for the people in London, and they were all kind of suffering. And periodically, they would um, they could be attacked by missiles from this occupying power, or have uh, you know uh, the army of the occupying power um, enter into this enclosed area and you know shoot Londoners. Uh, that's the scenario that should be presented in a in a kind of a what would you do situation. And in that situation, I don't think any Londoners or New Yorkers or people from any con any country or city around the world would have a problem uh, saying that, yeah, we would try to fight back. We would we would want to uh, address that situation or redress that situation um, and, and uh, stop that kind of a, of a persecution uh, of us by an outside power. Um, and if that included trying to fire some rockets out of London over the, the, the wall that was imprisoning you. And I don't think anybody would have a problem with that. So that's, that's what, if you want to present the situation to the outside world, that's the way it should be presented. Um, resistance. Well, essentially, yeah. I mean, that, that's what's going on. I mean, to, to turn around and say, uh, what would you do if your country was being attacked by rockets? isn't presenting the whole situation and is, uh, is supposing that it's, it's disingenuously uh, presenting it as if Hamas or the Palestinians 
are uh, unilaterally attacking Israel and Israelis by just, hey, we don't like Jews. Let's fire some rockets at them today because they deserve it because they're Jews and we hate them. That's, that's, that's the narrative that's presented. But of course, that's not the reason that Palestinians, Palestinians are doing this. Uh, if, if, like we were just discussing, if they are doing it at all. I, I have no problem with the idea that they are cobbling together some primitive kind of uh, projectiles that are lobbed over. Uh, and I also think that uh, it seems to be fairly true that uh, the Iron Dome, uh, which was supplied by America, the um, Iron Dome uh, system, missile defense system, is massive overkill for the for defending against these kind of things, you know, and because any rockets that do actually make it out of Gaza, for example, uh, generally speaking, they have no targeting system, uh, so who knows where they're going to go, and any of them, that, many of them, that, as far as I can see, most of them that have landed, not just this time, but in recent years, to have no explosive head in them, they just kind of go clunk on the street. Um, so to, to invest in this massive missile uh, defense system that is high-tech and then have it shooting off these missiles supposedly as interceptors for Hamas rockets, I think there's bound to be a bit of uh, theater involved in that. Like Neil was just saying, that they probably do uh, shoot off a number of them at nothing because it's very useful for a propaganda point of view for the uh, Israeli government to keep the Israeli people on side, on song, in terms of they're, they're under attack and that we have to take this action against the Palestinians to justify essentially the, the carnage and the slaughter in Gaza. Uh, the Israeli people have to be convinced that they're under attack. And if they're not under attack because the Palestinians generally don't have the means to really respond in any effective way, well then a little bit of theater on the part of the Israelis if they've got the system in place shooting off a few rockets, yeah, you can imagine they would do that. It would be all's fair in love and war type of thing, you know. Now about this uh, analogy with uh, London people being uh, harassed by a foreign force, um, mainstream medias and uh, Israeli uh, spokespersons have a narrative or they provide a historic background. And in a nutshell, it goes this way. The Nazis tried to kill all the Jews. The Holocaust was the worst time in uh, human history. And the survivors, post-survivors, have had to find a safe haven. They went to Israel. It was Palestine at the time, but it was desertic. It was a desert. There was no Palestinians there, only a few goats and olive trees. And they bravely settled in this uh, arid land. And they made it grow into Israel. And uh, in 1967, during the... The Egyptian army was on the border. They were about to strike. So Israeli, in a brave move, uh, struck first. And uh, because of their superior army, they won the war. And they conquered some territories, which is the logic, one of the logical consequences of uh, victory, army victories. They grabbed the Golan Heights. They grabbed uh, the West Banks and Gaza. Sinai, yeah. Sinai, yeah. And... Um, that's where we, we are today. And actually, since 1948, official creation of Israel, recognized by international bodies, UN, since for 66 years, Israel has been trying to, uh, to reach peace with its neighbors. And each time it's uh, some uh, 
terrorist act conducted by Arab activists are terrorists that stops the peace process and brings uh, conflict back? Well, um, where do you start? I mean, what was? Well, uh, maybe you can start with the uh, Holocaust. Maybe well, follow the historical well, okay, timeline. Okay, you want to start with the Holocaust? It yeah. doesn't start with the Holocaust. Israel was being created long before. It's actually an interesting tie-in with the other big event going on vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine. Odessa in Ukraine appears to have been the operational center for what would become the state of Israel. A lot of Jews came through Odessa from Ukraine, east to the rest of Eastern Europe, and Russia. At the time, they called it the gateway to Zion. They knew what was coming. They had their eyes set on this place and then called Palestine. And the forerunner to what became the Mossad slash Shin Bet in Israel was called Irgun, then designated a terrorist organization. Its operational center was in Odessa, Ukraine, run by Jabotinsky. So Israel as, the, as an entity was being created before the Holocaust. So we cannot start there. Although it's certainly a justification, or is used as a justification now. I mean, the Holocaust uh, did happen. Of course, it wasn't just Jews who were persecuted by the by the Nazis or uh, killed en masse in some way or other. But <coughs> by the Nazis, there were many other minorities who suffered as well. <coughs> but um, yeah, it happened, and it's used as a as a rationale of um, this is just the latest uh, round of persecution of the Jews uh, during the Nazi era, uh, because there, there have been pogroms, there had been pogroms going back. You know, you can go back. Uh, depending on your <clears throat> perspective, you can go back maybe you know uh, a couple of thousand years if you want, but certainly a few hundred years into pogroms or more into po- pogroms that uh, against Jews in various different countries in Russia and Spain and different places, um, all conspiring to um, produce the, the the appearance or the, the idea that the Jews are for some reason um, disliked by the peoples of the world type of thing, and therefore. A, um, a safe haven, as you said, is necessary for them. Um, that I don't really believe that that's uh, <clears throat> a solution. Or uh, assuming, uh, just taking for example the idea that Jews have been persecuted and uh, pogroms were, you know, that there's something about Jews, let's say, that make going the anti-Semitic and anti-Semitism right. That there's something about Jews that uh, Gentiles, uh, non-Jews, don't like or can't abide when they're in their society. Um, I don't think that's true, for example, because if you look at the pogroms and stuff, I mean, um, they all had specific, there were specific reasons for them. Let's say it wasn't just, as they say, anti-Semitism, kind of a hatred of Jews just for being Jews. Um, But even so, there were long periods when, and have been long periods when Jews have been living all around the world within societies in communities in different countries where there were no problems where they were just like anybody else and in that situation i think the solution uh, instead of some kind of a safe homeland for jews is that uh, jews should have done and uh, should have continued to do what they had kind of decided on which was to kind of disperse themselves 
around the world, like most other people um, or many other people have done. You know, um, there are more people uh, of Irish extraction, Irish Catholic descendancy in uh, in America, far more uh, than there are in Ireland today. Uh, they don't have a problem with it, you know. Um, so there's no reason that Jews cannot and should not be living everywhere around the world, practicing their religion, like amongst all the other religions of the world, and just being citizens of the countries that they choose to live in. That's an extremely normal thing to do. What's abnormal is the idea of a group of people who never had a homeland in that sense. We're not a kind of a... um, we're not, we're not a people with a country, essentially, that they were essentially just a sect, a group of people who identified themselves uh, via their religion um, and lived in various different countries. The idea of that kind of a, a group of people suddenly saying that they wanted a piece of land of their own uh, is, is abnormal, is strange. Uh, and then to go ahead and, and take it, take land from someone else to, to establish that, that idea, to create the reality of that idea is, is completely... It's completely abnormal. I don't think it has any precedent in 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 history, you know, um, in, in quite that quite that way, you know. You say taking a piece of land from from people from local people. Mainstream media usually claim that Palestine uh, in the middle of the 20th century or beginning of the 20th century was uh, pretty empty, was is some kind of desert, so it was not taken away from. Uh, Anybody in Israeli went uh, to an empty place, wow. which in addition was a promised land. For 2,000 years, it was where they originated, and that was promised by God to them. So there is a, a religious legitimacy. It doesn't hurt anyone since it was empty. Well, I thought we gave up the idea of, you know, abusing and killing other people uh, on the basis of religious books uh, back in the, in, in the kind of, uh, 12th or 13th centuries. The last crusades, I think most people... Or at least with the quote-unquote enlightenment. Yeah, at least with that. But certainly, I think, uh, back then, the idea of uh, invading other countries based on uh, pushing your religion on them or on the basis of your religion or what your, ah, religious, crusades, book, yeah. what your religious book says, uh, that's something from a, an uncivilized time that people today don't wouldn't describe to. And that's why I find it quite strange that anybody today would uh, put forward that uh, rationale or that... Um, uh, that reason for for uh, for what the Jews have, have done in, in Israel, um, it doesn't seem very civilized, essentially, and I don't think it was something that I personally would want to stand behind, because it does have uh, it harks back to a, to an extremely uncivilized time that is roundly condemned as an age of kind of not of enlightenment, certainly, and of you know bloodshed and you know uh, barbarism, essentially. You know, the fact of the matter is there were people there. The very fact that there are 1.7 million descendants of them, that's just a portion of them, Palestinians, original natives, quote, natives, in Gaza, directly descended from the people who were once living there. Well, no one disputes the fact that, um, even Israelis don't dispute the fact that 700,000 Palestinians were removed from the land. In 1948. In 1948. So to, to turn around at the same time as uh, recognizing that to then say that there was no one there is a bit schizophrenic. Yeah, you know? they they don't argue that too forcefully. They if it doesn't fly, so, you'll see that yeah. be muted. <laughs> True. Some extremists maybe uh, argue that, but 
Um, I think, uh, you know, the problem is one, I mean, there's various different ways you can, you can argue the point, our point. Um, you can argue it from a, from a rationale point of view, from a, from a logic and reason point of view, you know, uh, and I think ultimately when you push that logic and, and reason point of view, as we've kind of been doing, you force people who support Israel and what it's doing, you force them into the narrative that you just came up with, which is that God gave us this land and that's all there is to it. Yeah. And if you're going to bring it down to that level, well then fair enough, you know. So you're saying that your Bible, your, your religious book for which there is no historical, which is not a historic history book, there's no, it's not based on, on fact or anything, it's based on, you know, mythology essentially, it's, it's, a, it's a fiction book, you know, and you're going to base uh, what you're doing in the world today on the basis of a fiction book is, I mean, you can't argue with anybody uh, who takes that approach. I mean, not you just say, well, listen, uh, it'll have to be a case of, um, <laughs> you know, uh, live and let live or, or agree to disagree on that one. But, I mean, you would hope that rational-minded people would fall on the side of the people who are saying, well, you know, you can't really justify um, dispossession of uh, another people and the persecution of them uh, on the basis of, a religious book. Uh, you would hope that most people in the world would, would agree with that, you know. Um, and that no, a few people certainly wouldn't get legitimate or official, <clears throat> it wouldn't be legitimized officially by governments and stuff, that that is a, a reasonable argument uh, for Israel doing what it's doing or to justify Israel doing what it's doing. Yeah. In, in one sense, it, it doesn't actually matter where we start on a chronological timeline here, because human memory is very short-term. That's a bad thing. It's also a good thing in another respect. People generally live and let live. Okay, we move on. Israel is now a factor in the ground. Of course the people who were originally there, the Palestinians and other Arabs, basically accept that. They're not going to say Israel has no right to exist because there, the people are there. There's no, there's no getting away from that. At any point in time since Israel's creation, fine. There could have been peace, cooperation. It would have naturally come about under normal circumstances. People would forgive, forget, even if there was a lot of hurt from the past, because people tend to get on with what they've got to do today. And like I said, they have short-term memory. The Israeli regime keeps reminding everyone atrocious, uncivilized behavior. Uh, now, one point I was wondering about is uh, you have the three occupied territories. You have the, this Golan Heights, the West Banks, and Gaza. And most military operation seems to focus on Gaza. So why Gaza and not the two other occupied territories? Because the Golan Heights are more or less empty. Um, I can't, there's a name of the town there that was the biggest town. It was occupied by, I mean, it wasn't occupied, it was where it was part of Syria and it was where Syrians were living. I think it was uh, 130,000 people from the Golan Heights, Syrians from the Golan Heights who lived there, uh, fled basically into um, further into Syria. Uh, after the 1967 war, they were essentially cleansed as well by the Israelis. And then... Um, when the Golan Heights is still held by Israel, disputed territory, 
feeling that they didn't really didn't give it back. Um, Sinai they didn't want because it's desert. I suppose it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, of much interest to them. Um, but Egypt, they tried to give Gaza to Egypt, uh, but Egypt didn't want Gaza. Um, so Israel, in a certain sense, was stuck with Gaza. Um, and there's a lot of people living there. It's on the it's on the uh, on the coast. It's obviously the only it's the only Palestinian territory on on the Mediterranean. And living on the coast is usually quite a popular place for for people to live. If you look, you know, Tel Aviv is is on the coast of Israel's capital, uh, i.e., not Jerusalem. Um, uh, so that's that's why Gaza, I suppose, it's just a densely populated part of uh, what's left of the Palestinian territories. And um, can you describe Gaza in terms of uh, you mentioned the location? Uh, in terms of size and uh, how many inhabitants, and uh, it's about I mean, <clears throat> roughly about 25 miles or so, about 40 kilometers, 35, 40 kilometers long, by you know 10 kilometers wide at its widest part, but coming down to just a few kilometers wide at because it's not exactly square. Um, uh, so it's quite a small area, um, and there's about 1.8 million uh, Palestinians. Living there, and so it's one of the most densely populated pieces of land uh, in the world, and it has—I think it may have the highest, or the youngest population, the highest uh, youth population of anywhere as well. Um, I can't remember the actual figures, but it's more than fifty percent of them. More than fifty percent of Gazans are, are under are 17. under seventeen, essentially children. Um, so yeah, it's a hell of a place to. To go bombing, you know, and then to try and claim that you don't target uh, civilians or children when the uh, population is uh, a majority of the population are actually officially children. Uh, when you start sending missiles in, well, they're going to kill children. So obviously, the Israelis, despite what they say, the Israeli government knows that it kills children. I mean, they say they don't have a, they don't have a policy of uh, targeting civilians or targeting children, but when you send a missile into a densely populated urban area knowing that a lot of the people are um, children uh, and civilians, well, that's the same as having a policy of targeting civilians. I mean, I don't know how they kind of wiggle out of that one, but it's uh, they don't have an official policy of doing it, but they know that when they shoot a missile, it's going to kill civilians. Well, to me, that's the same thing. They wiggle out of that one by saying that Hamas uses those children as human shields. Mm. So if the children are blown up, it's because Hamas put them there. And they, uh, along this narrative, Israeli mouthpieces say that actually Hamas is embedding rocket facilities within hospitals, schools, mosques. There's no evidence for that. The Israeli ambassador to the U.S. was on CNN or CBS a couple of days ago. And the CBS played a report before turning to him to ask him this for his thoughts and uh, he lost it <laughs> he shouted at them on air you know why why did you leave out the important detail in that report it was about uh, the Israelis targeting hitting flattening two UN schools and killing at least 15 kids uh, you left out the important detail that we warned them that 
we would go for the schools and that you know we know that they put those kids in the school deliberately as human shields see I can't even get my head around it. I'm trying to understand yeah. it from their point of view and I'm like it's nonsense that's why <clears throat> it's, it's just made up nonsense it's I mean it's the last uh, resort of uh, a completely discredited and you know psychopathic uh, narrative essentially because that, that's already been taken down it's already been exposed it's false you know I mean it's hard to even give it any any, any airtime or any credence at all you know because I mean, there's no evidence for it. I mean, the BBC, for example, just um, a few days ago, BBC, there's, there's a Middle East, a veteran Middle East correspondent for the BBC called Jeremy Bowen, and he's in Gaza, or was in Gaza, and he wrote for the BBC, and you wouldn't expect this from, from the BBC, but even allowing for the BBC's uh, extreme bias towards Israel, um, even he was forced to and allowed to admit that when he was in Gaza, he saw no evidence of Hamas using Palestinians as human shields. So, I mean, you can't have it both ways type of thing. I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, there is no evidence is what I'm saying. There's no evidence that uh, Hamas uses Palestinians as human shields. Um, and that's just a cover for the fact that when the Israelis fire a missile into one of the most densely populated uh, areas on the planet, um, they're going to kill civilians. Mm. Uh, so here's the thing. If, you know, if Hamas, for, even if Hamas has no other option, let's say, because most of their sites have been uh, targeted, their rocket sites, their weapons caches sites, whatever, you know, they have no other option but to store some weapons beside a residential building. Well, Israel is not justified in attacking that building to get at those weapons. That's, you know, they're, they're facts on the ground. I'm sorry, you might want to, but you can't, and then claim that you are uh, excused from the civilian deaths. So the whole argument is just nonsense, you know. Um, I don't even know. No, Israel, IDF is trying to uh, show a venue of humanitarianism. Uh, despite their barbaric actions. And there seem, during this operation, to be a new feature. It's this warning you, you quickly alluded to uh, previously. Apparently, the IDF, before bombing this or that area in Gaza, issued a warning, which is very nice, so civilians can move away and there won't be any casualties. So that's quite a nice uh, and clean way of conducting wars, isn't it? This, yeah. I've seen two videos of those yeah. uh, knock-on-the-roof uh, warnings. One of them, uh, a small missile hits the roof of the building, uh, and one minute later, 60 seconds later, the building is destroyed. And then the second one I saw, uh, there was 15 seconds between the first small missile and the second one, which destroyed the entire building. 15 seconds. So there you go. So you have to review. You've got to be extremely quick. Let me just check to see if we have a caller on the line here. Hi, do we have a caller on the line? Yeah, yeah, yeah this is uh, Kent. Kent from hey, West Kent. Virginia. What's going and, on? Uh, uh, yeah, I, um, Gaza has the fifth highest population density in the world. Number one is Macau with 20.5 thousand per square kilometer. Monaco, 
5,000, Singapore about 8,000, Hong Kong about 7,800, and then Gaza with 4,700. Now, you know the first four are extremely wealthy um, enclaves and territories and have big, high, modern, high-rise buildings. You know, they're up built upwards. So, and Gaza is probably, I know they have some, they don't have 50-story skyscrapers, I don't think. So they're all spread no. out on the ground, and so it's really atrocious. And I think... Um, you're talking about the uh, the behavior of the, the Israelis. You know, it's just um, been in my mind that the biggest problem in the world is not anti-Semitism; it's anti-non-Semitism. Disregarding the fact that you know the 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 the, 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 the reality of what a Semite is, you know, that's that's been uh, sort of wiped away in this propaganda with this anti-Semitism. But really, there's anti-non-Semitism. Uh, what do you mean by that? Being a foot- well, anti-non-Semitism, well, first of all, if you have anti-Semitism and if you divide the, the, the population into Semites and non-Semites, well, then um, people who are opposed to the, the Israelis are opposed to non-Semites, so they're anti-non-Semitic. There's right. either, it's either or. You know, you have two groups, Semites, non-Semites, black, white, red, blue, and so actually there's anti-non-Semitism. That's the Israelis' attitude. And if we start challenging them, you know, it, it, it's it's really it's really a, a schoolyard sort of tactic, you know. But nevertheless, you have to deal with. It. That's the tactics they're using. So we you just accuse them of anti-non-Semitism. Yeah, and, uh, I, I think it's, you know. It's interesting. I think uh, that, that that I suppose what you're saying is anti-non-Semitism is the words uh, the term that is used is Islamophobia. Uh, at, at least in, in reference to to Muslims, you know. Anti-Guim. Yeah. Well, but the thing is, if you notice the way that's used, you know, you've got anti-Semitism, which is hatred, evil hatred of Jews, uh, whereas Islamophobia is a phobia. So, and phobias are generally, uh, okay, they're a bit irrational, but they're, they're real and it's something people can relate to. And it's like, it's usually, a, it can be often a fear of things that are kind of almost objectively scary. Arachnophobia is, is, is a, f- a fear of spiders, and spiders can be scary. So, so Islam is associated with that term with being something scary, whereas the opposite is anti-Semitism, which is this completely irrational hatred of another, of, of Jews, you know? Yeah, and well, I think it's, it's right for us to say that uh, Jews have a, an irrational hatred of uh, <laughs> Non-Semites. You know, of course, we know the Semites, the, the Palestinians are Semites, and the Khazars aren't. But uh, nevertheless, those are little facts that get to escape it. But nevertheless, they boiled it down into an us versus them, and def- they define themselves as Semites, mm-hmm. and the world's against them. So conversely, we have a right to, to say anti-non-Semitism. And mm-hmm. it, it, if we muddy the water, and it, it, if we muddy the water and open up discussion about that term that's been used to bully the world. And essentially, it would neutralize it, or at least open up a discussion about it. And uh, you know, somebody calls you um, on a schoolyard, say, "Well, you're a bully." Well, you turn around and say, "Well, you're a bully." And, you know, and conversely, it's a stalemate. But if somebody uh-huh. says you're a bully, and then you you slink away, well, then they win. You know, so uh, anti-non-Semitism. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's just yeah. I think you know, it's it's they're throwing words, you know. Words at it, you know, and so I mean, just have to fight them, fight them on their own, on their own level, you know, which is pretty basic and moronic, but nevertheless, but well, I don't see why mm-hmm. we shouldn't anti anti non-Semitism, you know, right. we're non-Semitic and they hate us, so they're guilty of anti non-Semitic Semitism, and you know that that's that's just the reality of it. So. 
They Ken, do hate us, uh, you know. Yeah, I, I'm not sure every Jew hates every non-Jew. Uh, what they call goim in the uh, in their writings, uh, in, Tal- in the Talmud in particular. But what is clear that for in the Talmud, which is one of the holy scriptures for Orthodox Jews, the goims, the non-Jews, are described in the harshest terms, and the religious law allows the Talmudic Jew to cheat, lie, uh, trick, deceive, even in some circumstances, uh, kill a goyim. <clears throat> so maybe we should not generalize, but uh, there is this tendency, at least in the Talmud, mm-hmm. this being said about the reversal of meaning of words, fun- fundamental words in Europe, or in France in particular right now, if you're not a Zionist, i.e. you're an anti-Zionist, but you will be labeled extreme right and a Nazi. You see, if you are not a, Nazi, uh, a Zionist, and the Zionist regime is a kind of Nazi regime, extreme right, so there is a reversal of role, and if you're not pro-Zionist, you will be called a, Z- a Nazi. And well, you're just the opposite. You see, yeah. it's mind-boggling. Right. So therefore, I mean, this anti-non-Semitism, you know, we have a right to use that and attack them on their own level, you know. And uh, they definitely are, you know, according, you know, the ones that do believe those, uh, you know, that uh, our strict followers, those um, sightings from the Talmud, <laughs> they're definitely anti-non-Semitic. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. So, All right, Ken, thanks for your... Okay. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah. It's... It goes, I mean, it's broader than that, of course. It's it's the way in which it's the way in which the psychopathic mind captures terms, defines them, and you said mind-boggling. It has that crazy-making effect on people, where the discussion is defined sharply into either or, black and white. Yeah. Well, they do. I mean, the Jew, not the Jews. I'm t- talking here about the. We're really talking about. The, the Zionist leaders, going back to the original Zionist leaders and the current Zionist, in quotes, leaders of today, who have set the, the discourse or established the dis- discourse and, um, you know, promoted it and encouraged Jews, as many as possible around the world, to feel like they are victims and perennial, perpetual victims, uh, and that it effectively comes from uh, the non-Jewish community, so that there's a there's a victim complex there that has been pushed on ordinary Jews, and of course it's a, it's adopted uh, to, to different uh, extents or not at all, depending on the the, the Jewish person in question. Uh, some of them are able to see through it and see that it's nonsense. Others, but it's quite insidious, I think. Uh, it's been pushed for so long uh, that. Um, they, and then they create this fortress type of thing, fortress Israel, and um, which just is a physical manifestation of this uh, kind of fortress or siege mindset they have, you know, where they're under attack and have been for centuries, and uh, and that makes the people all the more willing to uh, lash out and attack because they believe they're going to be attacked because they're told that there's a history of them being attacked uh, for irrational reasons, you know. So it's a real setup, a psychological mind job done on Jews, and um, of course we could get into all of the different situations where the reality of that uh, hatred, supposed hatred of Gentiles against Jews has been manufactured to some extent. Mm. Um, but um, it's very pernicious, yeah, and it doesn't 
augur well for the Jewish people. Uh, it, doesn't, it wouldn't augur well for any community of people who lived on this planet in the kind of world that we live in today to be to have that mindset, you know, uh, to have essentially a belligerent, knee-jerk reaction, fear-based kind of uh, mindset that is um, that is prone to to lashing out at the first sign or manufactured sign of uh, provocation or of, of, of threat. And there's been a long-term and deep psychological operation further than the Jewish population because for most time, most part of the planet, Jews were brilliant, fully integrated in local societies, in Europe in particular, and they were successful. So first step was to convince those highly educated, fully integrated Jews that they had to leave their country, their culture, their root, their family, their friends, their job, to go in a piece of desertic land, or, I mean desertic, uh, arid land, in the middle of nowhere in the Middle East, because they were victims, they were targeted, Nazism, anti-Semitism, etc., etc., although they were fully integrated. That was the first. Well, we could go down this road, but it would be a whole other discussion. I'm, I'm currently looking into this. Yeah? The... What what were the conditions of Jews in Eastern Europe in the late 19th century? Okay. This is the era of pogroms that Joe referred to earlier. It's it's murky. Back then, there was a lot of propaganda too about what was really going on. As far as I can make out, the Russian Empire tried earnestly to deal with the what was already then the perennial Jewish problem. And you ended up with a situation where they created a kind of territory in Eastern Europe, it became known as the Pale of Settlement, in which Jews were allowed to live and do as they please, but please stay here, don't come into other parts of the empire. Uh, they tried to do it in another way by creating another enclave further over in Siberia, in the Far East, where they still live today. There's a large community, there's an autonomous Jewish region in the far east of Russia. Um, the reason I bring this up is because about half of the Jews living in Israel today are of Eastern European or Russian descent. Now, they didn't just come in waves in the 19th century and then after the Second World War. Quite a large number of them came after the collapse of the USSR in the early 90s. So there's recent waves um, to it, it's, it's, a lot of them actually came after the um, large number came after the 1967 war, which in Israel and for Jews around the world was um, was a very uh, they were very proud of it. It was a, it was a very uh, it was an event. It was the winning of the 1967 yeah. Arab-Israeli war was something that um, inspired and uh, strengthened the kind of uh, Jewish communities around the world and mm-hmm. allow them to hold their heads up and see themselves as victorious and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of, uh, at that time that was in, uh, under the Soviet era, uh, a lot of uh, the Soviets were put under pressure to allow a lot of Soviet uh, Jews to to leave, you know, because at that time it was difficult to get out of the Soviet Union. And I think something like 290, almost 300,000 um, were eventually given permits to leave the Soviet Union, and about half of them went to Israel, and the other half went to America. <laughs> but uh, 
that's quite a lot, about 103,000 Russian Jews in 1967 uh, emigrated to Israel. And there's a sizable Russian Jewish uh, population in Israel today. And they are, to some extent, uh, kind of treated sort of as second-class citizens. Um, the Russian uh, Jews, we actually had a we had a friend who, who was mentioning this. Uh, she lived, she's of Russian uh, extraction, and, and she, but she's Jewish, and she, uh, she lived in Israel for a while, and she was telling us about how they're, they're kind of seen as a community apart to a certain extent, that there is that kind of uh, undercurrent of kind of discrimination amongst them. But the whole thing's ridiculous, because all the Jews in Israel came from somewhere else. Yeah. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. none of them can trace their, their families back to the supposed kind of uh, people, tribe of, tribes of Israel, whatever, back 2,000 years ago. It's all nonsense, you know, despite the fact that they might throw the Bible at you type of thing. It's, it's just pure nonsense. And that's part of the problem for me is in, in dealing with people who, who are Israel firsters type of thing is that they don't have any rational uh, explanation about or rational argument to make for Israel, for what Israel is doing today. And, uh, and that includes, that's obviously... Based mainly based on their, the biblical narrative that this land was given to us, and and then even from a modern day kind of perspective that you know we're being attacked by Hamas, etc. Uh, that doesn't make any sense either when we actually explore the details of it and look at how it actually started and what the situation is on the ground. None of it makes sense either. So <clears throat> they essentially do not have an argument, a valid argument by any rational, logical, sane, civilized uh, standards. There is no defense under, under those terms. There is no defense for what Israel is doing today in Palestine. It's all lies and obfuscation and manipulation of, of the data. And the kind of way that I was looking at it was, um, it's kind of like, you know, for whatever reason, and we know the reasons, but it's kind of like someone who has kidnapped another person and held them in a cellar or somewhere in a cage or something for quite a long time and treated them quite badly. And the kidnapper now having, with the many years having passed of him having treated this other person quite badly, is afraid because he expects that, well, this person's going to be angry at me and they're going to want to attack me, they're going to want to get revenge on me. So that's kind of like an undercurrent there where, where there's, um, they can't uh, kind of... Um, they can't open up the whole situation and, and, and essentially cool. give freedom or give independence or stop the occupation of, of Palestine because they expect that there would be uh, serious repercussions. But, of course, there, there probably there wouldn't be because the Palestinians simply want uh, independence and freedom from the siege and from the occupation. Stop the occupation and you solve the problem. But they, So they really don't want to do that. So that's one angle where they would be afraid. They would think that... Uh, the Palestinian and maybe even other Arab hordes once Israel would kind of back down or show a kind of weakness in that sense and the Israelis see it as a weakness once the Israelis would back down and say uh, stop the occupation, end the occupation that they would be attacked by not just Palestinians but by maybe other Arabs in the region as well because it would be seen as a kind of weakness but also the Israelis, uh, you have to remember that the Israelis don't just want a state of their own they want a Jewish state. And they're very adamant about this, that it has to be 
a Jewish state. And anything that threatens the Jewish nature, i.e. predominantly Jewish nature of Israel, is to them uh, the, de- the, death, the death of Israel. It has to be Jewish for them. Uh, therefore, that's why in all of the supposed kind of peace treaties that they blame the Palestinians for rejecting and stuff, uh, that's why they never seriously allowed or considered uh, the possibility of uh, the right of return, i.e. those 700,000 and the, their descendants that were uh, ethnically cleansed in 1948 and then more again in 1967. They, the Israelis will never allow them to come back because demographically uh, Israel would no longer be a clearly kind of Jewish state. It would be a mixed Arab and Jewish state. And this is the other, that's the other inexcusable thing about the Israeli stance, which is that they're unwilling to even accept that because the whole thing is founded on Zionist ideals and the idea of a Jewish homeland for the Jewish people based on a mythological book that has no historical backing to it. So the whole thing is just completely nonsensical. Yeah, and another major inconsistency, you, you emphasize this uh, duality, um, Jewish, non-Jewish, in this case, Muslim for the most part. Um, and when you think about this word anti-Semitism, based on Sem, one of the Bible patriarchs, so we're going back into religion here, fictive book, Bible. But you have this patriarch, Sem, who has two sons, Isaac and Ismael. Isaac and they're Semitic. Sem is the father of the Semitic branch. Sem has two sons, Isaac and Ismael. Isaac embrace, embrace Judaism. Ismael will embrace Islam. So within a Semitic population, you have Jews, the Sepharad Jews, the historic Jews, mostly located in Northern Africa and Middle East. And you have the descendant of Ismail. Jews uh, and the descendant of Ismail are Muslims. So in Middle East, you have mostly historically Semitic population that embrace two different religions. But these are the Semitic people. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now, centuries later, in Europe, you have the Sepharad, I mean Eastern European for the most part, population that embrace widely Judaism, and that would lead. Zionism, and where I'm going to is, uh, I thought about that when you mentioned this uh, uh, Jewish friend, who is very friend from uh, Russian extraction. I have a friend who is a Sephardic Jew, Northern African, Arabic uh, type, who told me in Israel he was considered a second class because, sure, he was Jew, but he was of uh, Arabic extraction, mm-hmm. which is kind of uh, uh, in opposition with... Um, there's almost this... Uh, Aryan or elected or super race. Absolutely. It's the uh, same in India. Do- dogma where yeah. to be a, a top citizen in Israel, yeah. you have to be white, Eastern European, uh, Ashkenazi, and Jew, of mm. course. Mm. Yeah. So Sepharad are kind of, uh, it's, what do we do with them? They're Arab, but not really Arab, not Muslim, they're Jew, but uh, they have that dark skin. And mm. We might have another call on the line here. Let me just check. Hi, do we have a call on the line? Hello. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, yes. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to uh, bring up a point uh, in this. You know, a lot of times in the U.S., uh, when they're talking about these wars in other lands, they say, well, these people have been fighting each other for thousands of years. They'll never settle. You know, I just wanted to turn people on to two uh, films. One is Jaffa, I believe it's called, 
about this orange region, orange growing region where Palestinians and Jews worked together before the current hysteria, and also a good movie on what it's like to be a Palestine in occupied Israel, uh, or occupied Palestine rather, uh, called Five Broken Cameras. Yes. Yeah, heard that, that was, one. Yeah, that was it, guys. Thank you. Okay, awesome. Thanks very much for calling. Okay, bye bye. Right. Yeah, I haven't heard of the first one. Type I'll broken, check it out. Yeah, Jaffa. Five Broken Cameras is, is very good, but uh, Jaffa is uh, <laughs> Jaffa is part of Tel Aviv, you know, and uh, that's a Palestinian name. Jaffa is a Palestinian name for uh, uh, well, it has well, it's not a Palestinian name. It's 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 a Hebrew name for a Palestinian name, but it was originally a Palestinian town, you know. So. Um, the bottom line is that every Israeli town uh, was a Palestinian town, essentially, or there were Palestinians living on it. So, um, Just to get back to your historiography there, Pierre, um, you, in citing it, you've kind of fallen into the same problems that all other histories have, which is that you began with Sem, the fictional biblical character, and then you develop these branches and you said, oh, well, I have a friend today who's a, and you gave the definition of a term based on that myth, a Sephardic exactly. Jew. We don't actually know what. Look, the, the origins of Islam are unknown. Officially, Islam conquered Europe and spread like this marauding civilization. Actually, it's probably more like they just simply moved into lands that have been wiped out by commentary bombardment. Yes. <laughs> so what I wanted to point completely eliminating any Bible stories from the time before that. What I want to point out is that Israel is very prone to quote the Bible and to base its actions on a biblical legitimacy. Yeah. And the main one of the main points in their rhetoric is anti Semitism. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to show how the the paradox they claim anti Semitism yeah. is rampant, at the same time Israel and Zionism led by Ashkenazi Eastern European Jews, is destroying Semites, mm-hmm. the uh, Muslim ones, and considering as lower class in their own country, Sephardic Jews that are Semites as well, yeah. according to their own definition. So yeah. Israel that point the finger at anti-Semitism is the, according to this definition based on their book, yeah. mm-hmm. the Torah, most- it's the most anti-Semitic country. The it's most anti-Semitic country in the world is Israel. Well, exactly. I find, you find when you look into all of the Israeli narratives about, about their history and about what they're doing today, you find that all of it is essentially uh, something that's been turned on its head. And the truth is generally 180 degrees from um, from uh, from what they say. So, um, but there's a, something that I based the uh, last article that I wrote um, telegenically dead Palestinians in the subversion of Israel. A quote by um, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, uh, who said it just a few days ago. Uh, he said, uh, "We have to protect ourselves. We try to target the rocketeers. We do, and all civilian casualties are not intended by us, but actually intended by Hamas, who want to pile up as many civilian dead as they can." Uh, because somebody said they use telegenically dead Palestinians for the cause. They want more dead, the better. So that's what uh, Netanyahu was forced to say 
essentially to, to justify what's going on. And that's pretty, pretty pathetic because, I mean, that's really stretching the limits of, of most people's kind of uh, disbelief or, or credulity um, when you effectively blame the people who are being killed for, or you accuse them of wanting to be killed to further their own cause. That's really getting close to the edge there of sanity, essentially. But, of course, there's a lot of people who are so uh, mind-programmed by the Israel uh, is under attack, Israel is a victim, and everybody hates Jews, etc., that they would probably believe that, you know. But it's kind of... Well, I was thinking about it again, and it kind of seems to me that it's kind of close, almost kind of close to the truth in a certain sense because there is a war the war there's a war going on but it's a strange kind of war um going on in israel palestine now and it's a war between people who have missiles uh high-tech missiles and a high-tech army and people who and on the other side people who don't have anything really except their own bodies uh and um, if you look at the kind of war, the information war that's going on around this, you see that those dead bodies of Palestinians and Palestinian children are being used, not deliberately, not in the sense that Netanyahu is saying that they're deliberately sacrificing their children, for example, to use them for propaganda purposes, but they, by the fact that Israel is killing Palestinian children, they're providing the Palestinians with just calls. Well, with with a propaganda weapon that is not uh, that Palestinians aren't using, it's simply happening and it's affecting it's affecting the Western populations who are looking at this war. They see these dead Palestinians that uh, are being killed by Israel, and that is um, that is a weapon against the Israelis that the Israelis themselves have produced for the opposition. And that's why Netanyahu had to come out with this claim. So he, it's almost like he's aware of that. I mean, who couldn't be aware of, 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 the, of the negative uh, image uh, of, the, of dead Palestinian children uh, and the effect that's having on the West and the world population. This so he has to turn around yeah. and try and say that they're doing this deliberately. But this is the same thing John Kerry says when images of people being blown up in eastern Ukraine show up. Oh, but that's just Russian propaganda. Yeah. I mean, it's scurrilous to turn and around. It's scurrilous, but he may actually believe it. I don't, believe, I don't think. It, uh, well, I maybe, think, it, I think anything that runs counter to what they what believe. He believes. But there's a very important point, I think, here. From what I see now, the only solution for Palestinians is not weapons, it's not those uh, uh, inoffensive rockets. It's not the few weapons they have. It's not an insurrection because uh, it's so asymmetric. I think their only chance is an international uproar to the, due to the horrific sight, recurring sight of dead Palestinian children. Mm-hmm. In this sense, well, the only weapon that Palestinians have only hope. The only weapon the Palestinians have to fight against the brutal occupation and siege of Gaza, for example. Um, is to die. That's exactly. that their weapon is to effectively die and to not give in. And this is uh, massively to the Palestinians' credit that you would think in that kind of a war, as you said, is so asymmetric and so disbalanced where people are just being shot like 
fish in a barrel type of thing and can do nothing about it. You would think that the Palestinian people, or you'd think that any people under that kind of, uh, subjected to that kind of brutality, would give in, would wave the white flag, would surrender and say, stop. Uh, okay, whatever. Whatever your demands are, we'll meet them, just stop killing us. But it's, uh, it's amazing the strength of the Palestinian people to not do that and to continue to uh, essentially put themselves, not put themselves in harm, harm's way, but to choose not to be threatened through essentially the, the worst kind of threat, which is that you will be killed, to choose not to succumb to that threat and lie down and be quiet or leave maybe, you know, like uh, emigrate somewhere right. else, get out of there. They choose not to succumb or not to bow down in the face of that brutality and they are willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, uh, which is to give up their lives simply by saying, we're not going anywhere. Uh, you can kill us from now till doomsday, but we're not going anywhere. And to and, and like you just said, therefore the the, the, the best hope they have and, and what the international community has to do is to at the very least recognize the suffering and death of these people who have put their lives on the line to stand up against a psychopathic regime in Israel which is slaughtering them that the international community has to at least recognize uh, their suffering and their death for what it is which is the only way these people can actually resist against the psychopathic regime that will not accommodate them, will not, uh, you know, enter into any meaningful peace agreements with them, will not give them any quarter, will not give them back any of their land effectively, uh, and wants to imprison them and continue to brutalize them until something happens. I don't know, maybe they'll all disappear or run away. That's what they hope, but the Palestinians are not doing that, and the international community has to recognize that, and that has to be used as leverage against the Israeli regime to make it stop because it's it's the it's an attack on humanity it's an attack on everybody's humanity what is going on because i mean it's your basic humanity cries out against the murder of children and it should do and against the murderers of children yet somehow there is this strong force in the world that is attempting to convince the people of the world that it is in some way justified to kill children. And that's what I was saying in my last article, which was that this, I reckon that this must have some kind of an effect on people who choose to condone the murder of children, that it must in some way destroy part or all of their humanity within them, and who knows what implications that will have for those people. I mean, it's like, as Neil was saying to me last night, it's kind of like, you know, selling your soul to the devil. Yeah. But it's even worse than that. You're not consciously selling it. You're allowing yourself to be manipulated by the devil to give up your soul. And everybody's aware of you know, the idea that your soul could be destroyed or your humanity could be destroyed. Well, that's what's happening, or that's the attempt going on at the minute to subvert the humanity within so many people around the world by getting them to accept the murder of children as somehow justified. Yeah, it's a war for our souls, the souls of every human being on this planet. And here, the, I see a logical chain of events. Israel brutalities and murders pictures of dead Palestinian children, reaction in various countries from the masses, demonstration in particular, and then Western elites being forced to react. 
concerning this first step, there's a new development we didn't notice in previous op Israeli operations, is that uh, in some countries, or at least here in France, demonstrations for Palestine are being banned. So how do you analyze this move? Uh, this move? Does it mean that the elites are getting aware of this growing discontentment amongst the masses and uh, they have to ban it in order to hide uh, the growing hunger? What's your take on it? It's, it's, it's the next logical step. If you think about all of the things people in the West have accepted since 9-11, you accepted that torture was okay under some circumstances. You accepted that it's okay to invade and occupy another country and steal its resources. You, you, you step by step accept it got to the point where, oh, well, demonstrations have, there's precedent, demonstrations were already banned in, I can think of in the UK, they banned demonstrations, and they also make it harder and harder. You have to petition, you have to apply for the right to demonstrate, choose your day, and they're making it very, very hard to do so. So this is the next logical uh, thing they can get away with. I don't think it's a direct... I don't think it's really a direct feeling of, oh, we're being threatened by these particular protests. Therefore, we'll shut them down. Um, well, I think in France, they're obviously very um, influenced or very under the control of the Israel lobby. So uh, I think in that decision to ban certain pro-Palestinian protests in France, that uh, the French uh, Prime Minister, uh, Manuel Valls, was... Um, being a bit of a rabid Zionist himself probably didn't need much encouraging, but uh, certainly no, he was, uh, would have been uh, given instructions or taken instructions from the Israel lobby in France to uh, to do something about this, you know. And that's not a very good... Uh, I mean, that doesn't... It's not a good... Uh, it doesn't all go, all go well for, for France, you know, to have someone like that uh, to officially... Uh, take a stance or take a position a pro-Israeli, anti-Palestinian uh, and essentially pro-slaughter of children uh, stance for France or in the name of France. Uh, but again, on the other side, there's maybe that provides the opportunity for people in France to kind of uh, to see what's going on and to take a further step down that path of uh, awakening to just uh, who these people are that are uh, so our so-called leaders and, and um, what motivates them and what's in their head, the kind of nature that they have, you know. So on the one hand, it's bad, but on the other hand, every move that these psychopaths in power take uh, provides an opportunity, at least in potential, for the people to wake up to what's going on. So if they, even if they do see it as a kind of a threat, <clears throat> by clamping down on those threats, they end up kind of uh, pushing forward or pushing themselves closer to the possibility of, of, of a, the situation that they're trying to avoid, which is the people turning on them actually becoming a reality. Yeah. So they're playing a kind of, you know, a difficult game there, and it doesn't look, it doesn't look good for them ultimately. You know? It's tricky, and uh, that raises the question of uh, the possibility of exporting the conflict. Because by banning those demonstrations, somehow it leads the people in those countries uh, to make a choice. Either I agree with authorities and I don't demonstrate, or I demonstrate, although it's illegal, and I put my life at risk to some extent. I might be arrested, etc., uh, etc. Et Which reflects somehow the choice made by Palestinian people and described by, uh, by Joe. They are kind of a hero or 
sacrificial martyrs showing something very important to all of us. Mm-hmm. So what is your take on it? What would you advise to, to people, for example, in France? Okay, demonstrations for Palestine are banned. Do you go there? Take the risk. Don't you go there? Um, I think the people who, who are inclined to do that, to get out on the street and kind of protest, I mean, they serve a, a very useful and important uh, purpose. Um, but I think it's not, ne- I mean, it's necessary in the sense that I think there will always be people who will do that, who will take to the streets, particularly in France, where there's a sizable kind of uh, um, uh, a pop- well, population of, of Muslim North African extraction and stuff. There's going to be a natural affinity with uh, the persecution of Muslim and Arab, Arab peoples. So that's always going to happen in France, I think, and, it's, and that's always uh, useful and it's important for those people to do that. But um, I think it's not necessary for everybody out in the streets because, as we were just saying, uh, the battle or the war that's going on, um, the attacks that people in, in the West, for example, are being subjected to is at the level of an information war where your opinions and your beliefs uh, about things that you maybe took for granted before uh, are being challenged. And thing, the things I'm talking about here is your sense of uh, decency and humanity and civility and all that kind of stuff. And you're being asked to choose between uh, whether you'll accept uh, inhumanity and brutality in the murder of children as good or as acceptable, at the very least, or you condone it or turn your face away. Uh, that's what people are being challenged to do or to take a stand. And for me, in the broad scale of evolution of, of human civilization, that's it's a very important thing that people would be challenged because, uh, as I was, uh, I was saying this, I think I was saying to Neil uh, a while ago, um, it's kind of interesting that because of the information age, which has dawned in, uh, over the past 20 years, really, it's since 1995 or whatever, that... Uh, Everybody has a computer, for example, or most people have computers and um, and have access to a lot more information. Um, and also, you know, in the last 50 years, you know, television and basically the information age where media is all around the world and there's instant availability for instant communications and pictures of stuff going on all around the world that someone uh, in a rural kind of area of some country in Western Europe would never have had access to a few decades ago. And because of that, uh, these kind of situations where um, there's a, an attempt to justify uh, brutality and inhumanity as something good or positive, uh, that's all now available. Whereas that might have happened in kind of secret or in private or, um, or certainly wasn't available. Uh, the awareness of those events wasn't available to a, most of a large percentage of the population. It now is and it's been shoved onto people's plates now to decide, you know, uh, make a decision here, you know. Uh, if this was all happening, if, when, as this happened, let's say, in 1948, when 700,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed from Palestine, someone uh, where we are in France or someone in uh, Ireland and rural Ireland didn't know about it. I mean, there was a bit here and there in the papers, you know, uh, you know, the, the Times of London give a sanitized version of it or something, and it didn't really relate to those people, you know. But now with the ability to see it all happening in real time, that the choice is really being forced on people. Yeah. And it's really put in their laps and they have to choose. And people need to choose very wisely, you know. Um, There's no mitigating circumstances. Exactly. You cannot invoke ignorance because yeah. the information is out there. Yeah. And that's, good. that's a good thing, you know. 
because it kind of separates the wheat from the chaff and that needs to be done on this planet, you know, because it's for too long there's been too much of a mixing of uh, people of heart and of conscience and people without it uh, who manipulate and a mixing of those two yeah. kind of like viewpoints essentially because there is a difference clearly between uh, people on this planet in a broad sense, let's say. Uh, I'm not saying you can divide it very clearly or equally, but there is a kind of seems to be... Uh, I mean, a kind of a difference that is being manifested or shown now by this, for example, this uh, situation in Israel-Palestine and by also by the situation uh, with Russia and the U.S. in this new Cold War. You see people who just are exposed to the information and the data on it, and some of them uh, go one side and some of them go the other. Now, for me, that's evidence of some kind of a pretty fundamental difference in people when they're all... Uh, exposed, exposed to, the to or, avail- or have, have available Act, yeah. to them the same information, they make very different choices that come down on one side or the other. And for me, that's a good thing. Another symptom, <coughs> excuse me, another symptom of this uh, very fundamental choice for or against your soul, your conscience, is that I noticed this Israeli-Palestine conflict is very emotionally charged. And it might be proof or evidence that Indeed, people at least unconsciously know that something important is at stake. Yeah. yeah. And the position about this topic uh, matters. The, now, the, the next question I'm, I'm wondering about, if, as you've shown quite uh, clearly, eloquently, um, the case is quite clear-cut, why on so, in social media like Facebook or YouTube People like you and me are free to post. Why do you have so many positive comments about Israel? Why do you have so many positive comments by Israel? About Israel. About Israel, yeah. By who? By a by lot of people. Commenters. Well, we've already discussed that. There's some people who are just mind programmed by the mm. by the by the uh, the information, the media, the government, their authoritarian followers essentially, and they tend not to, they're a bit afraid to rely on their own faculties to, they don't have something within them where they can say, well, I'm going to make up my own decision, my own mind about this. Uh, they always tend to defer to the higher authority and they want an authority to make decisions for them and to tell them what's happening. And they want to be attached to or associated with that authority because they think it gives them protection and security. And it's maybe like a a surrogate for a kind of a god, you know, in a certain sense. I mean, they believe in God, but they also seriously believe in the government and uh, our country. I mean, there's different names for it, but it's all, all a kind of a, uh, an authoritarian allegiance to something uh, higher than them, something stronger than them, you know. And those people who are that way inclined uh, will believe the, uh, the established authorities of the day and what they say. So those people on Facebook who are pro-Israel are essentially Westerners, Western Europeans, and Americans who are watching the news in the evening and getting their daily dose of what is true from the news. And that's what they come and then repeat. And I've seen it over and over again that they repeat verbatim what they just watched on the news. And more than once, I've responded to such people as saying, telling them that, that you've just said exactly what was in that article. Uh, that you just read, and I can cite the article to them. You just repeated it. Maybe you copied and pasted it, or maybe you put it in your own words. Uh, and I say, in which case, uh, you don't really need most of your brain. 
because a large part of your brain uh, is dedicated to kind of a critical thinking, kind of higher faculties in your brain and stuff, and you're obviously not using them. You don't want to use them. So I suggest they go and have a lobotomy and donate at least half of their brain to science and at least get some use out of it because they're not using it. That reminds me, I saw another report today about how scientists confirmed that 90% of human DNA is junk. And for 90% of the population, <laughs> they actually believe that to be true mm-hmm. and behave as if it were true. But, and then, of course, yeah, Israeli numbers are, when it comes to social media, they're, they're very vocal. Obviously, there's a Jewish or Zionist-connected control of media when it comes to traditional forms of information. And then online, we know that they've concerted efforts to try and get the, Israel's message out there, get out there and fight the, those lies, you know, from their perspective. Hasbro, of course, is the official Israeli sort of semi-state propaganda organ that encourages Jews to do their bit for defending their name by essentially fighting on behalf of the lies that the Israeli government pushes out there. There, and you get a lot of really persistent people, but their numbers aren't that great, you know. How do you become a Halbar activist? Either are there some formation, some guidelines? Are you paid? Yeah, you have to have a lobotomy <laughs> first. You have to show the half brain in the jaw. Yeah. Uh, I think money changes hands. I think there are various schemes. You um, pay two thousand dollars for five hours work. There you go. They get students to do it for some pocket money. Not just students in Israel, but abroad too. I still remember I was, I was going to university in Scotland. And I was, I was still ignorant about the Israel-Palestine situation at all when I first came across this kind of manual. In fact, it was a whole box full of them sitting on the, on the table in this guy's apartment. And he was uh, Jewish. I mean, he was Austrian, I think, by birth, but uh, Jewish. And he was, I think he was staying in like a Hillel house. So it's kind of like... Most students, when they go to a new place, you know, they're looking forward to meeting people from other countries and they integrate and you end up living with people from all over the place. A lot of Jews will go and live with other Jews from other countries, mind you, but still other Jews. And they're given, if they so choose, to do their part for the Zion project. They're given materials to be able to hand out to, I guess, other Jews others who are maybe learning about the situation for the first time, going to that first protest against Israel. Uh, It it was only in retrospect that I realized the extent of these kind of informal, partially formal networks that are ready and waiting to counter those evil lies they say about Israel. It's really astonishing to see. Yeah. They're everywhere. No, but um, I, uh, there's another angle to the, the problem um, that is pretty clear-cut and definitive in terms of um, dismissing the Israeli point of view as you have so eloquently put forward today, Pierre. Um, it's that Israel is in violation of international law. Now, Israel 
uh, likes to think of itself as a little slice of civilization in the Middle East, surrounded by you know barbarian hordes of Muslims, and it promotes itself as this, and has done for quite a few years. Uh, but it, if if it pretends to that status, it needs to, I would assume, it needs to join the international community, the civilized community that adheres to international law, at least, you know, gives lip service. <laughs> but it doesn't because Israel isn't even, um, it hasn't even signed up to the, uh, for example, the fourth Geneva Convention, which was signed by uh, after the Second World War, specifically to deal with all the problems caused by uh, uh, the Second World War. Israel hasn't signed up to that, but it doesn't really matter because... Um, it's because so much time has passed since the Geneva Convention uh, and so many other countries have adopted it, um, it's seen as binding on all countries in the world. Uh, so even if Israel hasn't signed it, it's still, uh, it's still required officially to adhere to it. And um, the Geneva Convention specifically uh, outlaws um, things like collective punishments. Uh, it says, uh, Article 33 says, no persons may be punished for an offence he or she has not personally committed. This speaks directly to, for example, uh, the reason why Israel launched this uh, uh, massacre in Gaza, which has killed over a thousand civilians. So far, uh, they blamed uh, Hamas for the kidnapping and murder of three Israeli teens, teenagers. Um, but it has since been admitted by the Israeli police that Hamas was not responsible. and But Israel went ahead and obviously collectively punished the people of Gaza uh, on the basis of that, and that is in breach of uh, international law. Um, there's, also, um, uh, there's also prescriptions against um, uh, occupation as part of the Geneva Conventions, uh, which and Israel is clearly occupying... Um, Palestinian land, uh, settlements, Israeli settlements are illegal. Uh, Israeli settlements in the West Bank are illegal under international law. And uh, uh, just to add one point, while occupation is deemed illegal by Geneva Convention, resistance to occupation yeah. is deemed legal. Of, of course, yes. So people under occupation, which is quite clearly the Palestinians, um, are entitled under international law to resist that occupation. Um, which would include the firing of these, you know, not very effective rockets. So Israel's justification uh, uh, for bombing and killing so many civilians in Palestine uh, that they were being attacked uh, by Hamas rockets is is not legitimate uh, under international law. Uh, Hamas and the Palestinian people are uh, legally entitled to resist occupation. Uh, the occupation is illegal and the Palestinians are entitled to resist it and Israel can do nothing about it. Israel is actually uh, uh, legally not entitled to respond to that resistance, to try and reinforce the occupation. So across the whole front of the situation in Israel-Palestine, Israel is in breach of international law, which the civilized world adheres to and sees as and is upheld supposedly by the UN and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's in breach of it. So it's, it's, it's effectively is in terms of the, the question posed as the title of our show. Uh, Israel is, uh, from a legal perspective, a pariah state, an internationally a pariah state, because it is um, 
Not that all the countries in the world aren't in breach of international law as well, but the problem with Israel is that it pretends to be a civilized nation, it pretends to be a little slice, like I said, of the West in the Middle East, uh, but it clearly is not if it is not going to adhere to the norms and standards and laws of the civilized West. So it needs to make a choice. Um, we've seen Israel bombing UN facilities, UN schools, hospitals, uh, blocking Red Cross um, employees as well in 2009, not giving a, a down to uh, international law, uh, behaving boldly towards the US. It seems to me that somehow we are all Palestinians in the sense that this small, this very small country seems to terrorize not only Palestine, but the whole world, and have control on most aspects of the world life. And the medias, politicians, a fraction of the population seems to be under the thumb of Israel, a tiny country lost in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. How come? Well, there's many, there's been, many people have put forward an explanation for that. Of course, there has been some uh, evidence to back it up as well, but and the evidence I'm, I'm pointing to here is uh, evidence about Israeli spying and uh, spirings in, in various different countries and uh, Walt and Mearsheimer's uh, uh, book, uh, The Israel Lobby, uh, professors Walt and Mearsheimer from, uh, from the US who wrote a book called The Israel Lobby that exposed the strength of the lobby in Israel. And lobby is just another word for a gang of blackmailers essentially at the same, you know, some level of blackmail, but really spirings have been exposed in the U.S. Uh, allegations of what they get up to is kind of, um, uh, you know, actual real blackmail in the sense of getting the goods, the dirty goods on certain uh, politicians. Uh, for example, they're, they're less than savory or less than publicly acceptable activities, uh, sexual activities maybe, or other criminal activity, officially criminal activity, uh, having, you know, essentially having uh, details about that and thereby putting pressure on, i.e. blackmailing politicians to make sure that they stay in line. Uh, there was a story recently uh, that just came out it's a long time ago, but um, that um, the Monica Lewinsky affair with Bill Clinton, that that was uh, effectively an Israeli operation, that the Israelis were... Um, I think Lewinsky was herself was Jewish, so I mean it's a kind of a direct link. But um, that they were putting pressure on Clinton um, at that time over the situation in Israel and Palestine. <clears throat> so you can, you know, once once you've got a few bits of evidence that point to that happening, you can kind of extrapolate out a little bit and imagine just to what extent it happens and is going on and not reported, goes on in secret and goes on in. in many different countries, you know, because it is really the only rational explanation uh, for why so many people who are in other countries who are not Jewish have no ties with Israel or uh, no reason to, to be such ardent supporters of Israel, uh, why they do that, you know. Um, like, for example, there's a foreign minister in Ireland right now who is uh, who is responsible for the recent UN, uh, what do you call it, the resolution, resolution on, uh, on Israel-Palestine, which was kind of condemning the, the Israelis mm -hmm. for, the, for the civilian uh, slaughter, and they, um, the Irish abstained. 
and the Irish Foreign Minister, who's only just recently made a foreign minister, uh, he's. Uh, <laughs> he, I mean, he's a he's an Irish Catholic, and he's no. I mean, he has no ties to Israel. He's not Jewish or anything like that. So, I mean, I have no idea why someone like that would support uh, Israel in in this situation where it's a clear um, clear cut breach of kind of all humanitarian norms and the murder of children, all that kind of stuff. Why someone like that and other people similar to him with no ties to Israel would come out in support of Israel. There has to be some mechanism that forces those people to do that, unless they're pathological themselves and for some reason just, you know, identify with what Israel is doing. Maybe they like seeing uh, dead children, you know. But um, that argues quite strongly, at least circumstantially, for there being a serious infiltration of governments around the world by uh, Israeli operatives or people, agents of the state of Israel in positions of political power in those countries. Uh, of course, we can talk about APAC and Jinsa and different uh, Jewish lobby groups, etc., that, um, that operate and have been operating for a long time. Um, I mean, it's all, it's all there for people to put the clues together and see that that's what's going on. And I think it's motivated by this paranoia that we talked about earlier on, the, the victimhood or the victim status that uh, Jewish people have, uh, but of course, at political level, at the political level, and um, that kind of victimhood status is mixed with a self-interest. You know, where that uh, idea of the Jewish people being a special case and under attack and needing special treatment and special conditions uh, facilitates uh, the acquisition of of power and control as well. You know, so I'm not at all suggesting that it's merely a case of these people are simply under some psychological kind of delusion that they are victims and they genuinely feel that uh, because there's something wrong psychologically with anybody who, who, who would actually believe that the Jews are under uh, existential threat from the rest of the world and they must do everything that they do to protect their people uh, because at any moment the Gentiles will turn on them and destroy them just like uh, the Nazis. That I don't. Uh, some people may believe that, but if they do, there's something wrong with them. I think a lot of other people use that to acquire uh, power and influence. Uh, not many years after 9/11, the former president of Italy went on public record as saying that Mossad was primarily responsible for 9/11. I reckon that this is fairly commonly known in halls of power, not just 9-11, but in, as a general status quo of how things work, that the Israelis or, in brackets, people who are embedded within the Israeli structure have an inordinate, enormous amount of influence over world affairs. How does that happen? I do not know. That's that's the mystery. That's the big sixty-four thousand dollar question. It's the deviousness <clears throat> with which they go about the job, and uh, I think it must be informed by to some, ma- yeah. some extent the idea that they're special, and also there may be an actual uh, genetic or psychological uh, construct behind it, where they are actually quite uh, quite good at uh, 
at insinuating themselves into positions of power, and, but they have a drive to do that. But when you get to that level of a drive to insinuate yourself, insinuate yourself into positions of power, you don't need the idea of Jewish victimhood to motivate it. That drive for power is the motivation yeah. in itself. You know, um, we might have a call on the line here. Hang on. Hi, do we have a call on the line? Yeah, this is Kent calling you back. Just uh, you were talking about Ireland. I, I called you a couple months ago and conveniently you have this guy named Alan Shatter who's the defense minister and justice minister and has all yeah. sorts of powerful positions there. And he's So I think that it tells you what's going on in Ireland there. So Yeah, uh, pretty much. Ireland always had the, the reputation for being a very humanitarian response, you know, um, very humane and, you know, humanitarian country and that's pretty shocking, and that, I think there you go. That tells you everything right there. So yep. that's all I wanted to say. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Kent. Thanks, Pat. Yeah. Um, they, uh, yeah, that guy, Alan Shatter, he, yeah, it's strange. It's, an ob- it's, it's strange. It's weird. You can try to come up with some kind of explanations of why Jewish people are overrepresented in politics around the world, and they're overrepresented in, uh, <clears throat> in terms of the wealthy, uh, and in the U.S., in terms of billionaires, they're overrepresented in terms of the heads of major corporations. In the U.S., that's a fact, you know. I mean, I'm not going to – you can accuse me of anti-Semitism for stating a fact, but there you go. I mean, is it true or it's not? If, if, if it's anti-Semitism, does that mean it's false? Or can it be true and also anti-Semitism? No, it, when people hear you say that and they scream anti-Semitism, what they're saying is shut up. Okay, so it's not false. No. It's no, not true. arguing with you. This okay, is shut up. I, for a while there, I was starting to think that uh, the truth was anti-Semitic. Uh, but maybe more, it's not. More and more. And uh, the thing is, there might be uh, negative traits leading to uh, this overrepresentation and positive ones. Maybe both are, are true. There might be a, a dark side, a drive to power, a use of deception, a cunningness. And at the same time, there might be some... Uh, yeah, true intellectual abilities, uh, reasoning capacities, and uh, both may go well hand in hand to explain this uh, over surprising overpresentation. Surprise, yeah. it's, it's striking actually. But in Israel, they've gone too far. They've gone. They've taken it to the point where there is going to be a backlash because that kind of a push and a drive to dominate and control and thinking that you can basically manipulate and control the whole world eventually has a breaking point where there will be a, a kickback because you can't do it, especially when you're using increasingly ridiculous, obnoxious, obtuse, and just plain wrong uh, excuses or claims for why you should be allowed to do it. For example, I mean, the idea, just in, in terms of the faulty thinking uh behind the Israelis, uh, the Israeli political class in Israel and their uh, their policy towards Palestine. I mean, they have this idea of the power of deterrence, you know, which is they think that their military uh, and what they're doing in Palestine is there to deter everyone else, well, in particular the Palestinians, from taking any uh, action against them. But that power of deterrence, if you think about it, what is it? It's, I mean, an analogy would be that if there's a guy planning to rob a store, if he knew that the store owner has a gun, that's power of deterrence. The robber will think twice 
robbing the store if he knows that the guy's got a gun and he might shoot him, so he probably won't rob the store. But and that's what they try to apply to Palestine, you know. But uh, that that doesn't apply to Palestine because the Palestinians are not opportunistically attacking Israel. You know, uh, they're fighting for their freedom from Israeli occupation. So that kind of a deterrence is just more of the occupation. It's more of the brutality. So it doesn't actually work as, as a deterrence. The Palestinians will continue to resist, as we described earlier on, against that brutality because, you know, so the, the very term, the power of deterrence, and they, they, they push that and they think that this is what we need to have. But it, and, they, and it's in the media and all that kind of stuff, but it doesn't make any sense when applied to the situation because the reality of the situation is not understood because they basically ignored it because it, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't fit with their narrative of them as the victims and them defending themselves. So they ignore the actual reality on the ground and follow this policy that is based on a completely uh, wrong analysis of the situation, a deliberately wrong analysis of the situation because it doesn't suit them. It's not comfortable. And they're going to follow that policy. And that ends in disaster for, well, ultimately for the Israelis because, like we said, it's, it's self-destructive. They are effectively destroying themselves. And as Gilad Atzmon said uh, recently that, yeah, it's, you know, they think they're fighting to prevent the destruction of the, of the Jewish state when the policy that they're following right now is going to usher that in quite clearly if you follow it through plain logic and, and uh, accepting and allowing for the facts, the actual facts of the situation. Um, Speaking of plain logic... Oh, hang on. I was going there. Neil, you were mentioning the tremendous power of Mossad. Well, uh, in France, there's a joke, you know, to explain everything. When you don't know the reason, you say, oh, it's Mossad. It's a, it's, it'll become a popular are you, joke. Are you saying so, that's what I did? <laughs> so, so I was going to ask you, uh, well, Mossad is not behind everything. You mentioned 9-11, possibly. They're not behind the crash of MH17, right? That uh, crashed in Ukraine uh, a few days ago. Or are they? Well, given the circumstantial situation as described by Joe just now, where they are in a position to do such a thing, they have the means to do it. You're asking then, do they have a motive? Exactly. Quibono. bono. You can certainly see how the, this plane crash stands out from all the other ones around it, ones that have happened since, ones that happened just before, and going back in decades, the way in which this was capitalized on for political purposes. That right there is your first big red flag that something went down here that runs con totally contradictory to what we're being told happened. So that's when I started looking at whose missiles were where, who fired what, what planes were in the air at the same time. And yeah, we're being lied to. Who fired that right uh, there? About the one who fired the missile, you mean? Yeah, and even about how the plane came down. How did it go down? Well, well, my main suspicion is because there's zero evidence for there being a missile. And that was the very first thing they said happened. They had a story of how it happened and who did it from the beginning. And when that happens, Hey, you got to go, wait a minute. But even Russia mentioned the missile. No, Russia's just responding to the accusations. But they haven't actually insinuated that Kiev, in fact, 
fired a missile at the plane. All they've done in response is said, no, there's no evidence for their being the rebels in Donetsk and Lugansk firing a missile. But what we do have is evidence of, and they show their radar and satellite footage showing that the Kiev and Washington line on what happened to that plane is a lie. So no rocket in Palestine and no rocket in Ukraine? How did the plane go down? It's kind of a pattern, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, not, not only, the cre- if I understand your reasoning, they create missiles or rockets, and they attribute the firing of those rockets to the one they want to, to target. Yeah, I mean, there's a definite correlation there. I mean, it seems to be that there's, I mean, you can't, notice, you can't not notice the, the, the similarity in the two scenarios, and also the fact that uh, the same kind of psychopathic types in power uh, are are bombing civilians. I mean, in in, in eastern Ukraine, uh, there's increasingly more and more pictures and evidence of the Kiev forces uh, kind of indiscriminately targeting uh, urban areas of, of various towns in um, in eastern Ukraine and killing many civilians. You know, really, I mean, pictures as bad as pictures you're seeing from Palestine. You know, uh, people with their heads blown off, legs, arms blown off, but you know, a woman lying with her leg barely intact with her baby in her arms, both of them dead on the ground. <clears throat> I mean, I mean, it's it's hard not to draw a parallel between the two, you know. And if we follow Neil's remark a few minutes before, it's not surprising to perceive the same behavior in Ukraine and in Israel, because if I correctly understood you, the population comes from the same geographic area. It's the same... Uh, well, not really, no. Yeah, it's, that's... That's kind of circumstantial, historical, historical yeah. points of interest here. Okay, but there is it is. I I was looking for that and found it when it came to me that what I'm seeing happening in Gaza now is the same as what is happening in eastern Ukraine. Um, obviously there are a lot of conflict points all over the world. They come and go, but the, the sheer brutality of it matched with. The, the level of propaganda working to tell, convince people that it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those two are really top of the list right now. And there are some Jewish oligarchs in Ukraine. Um, Kolomoisky, for example, is one who is implicated repeatedly by the people in eastern Ukraine and the, the rebel forces as being a, a kind of point man for the operations uh, by the Kiev government against Eastern Ukraine and the targeting of civilians and stuff, you know, and he's a Jewish uh, uh, multi-billionaire. Um, so, I mean, you can't... We're, we're talking here about Mossad and that kind of stuff, but I mean, these people are known people, you know. Um, they're known individuals, but at the level of Mossad and, you know, taking down airliners and that kind of stuff, that's all very obscure and dark. I mean... I mean, other aspects of, of, the, of the shooting down or the, the taking down of the plane or about the black boxes yeah. that were taken away. Um, this, this has got to be like... So normally when a plane goes down, everyone knows at this point that black boxes contain a lot of data. They were priming people five days ago for there to be nothing of value in the black boxes. Headline in a British newspaper on 22nd. Is the data on MH17's black box useless? Useless in capital letters. 
readings on flight recorders will reveal nothing about the attack, experts claim. That's exactly the opposite of what flight data recorders reveal. The following day, U.S. publication, MH17's black box of little use in events of instant decompression caused by BUK missile strike. That's already become a fact, of course. And instant decompression, that's the first time we hear that. It's consistent with missile impact, no? A missile impact the fuselage, mm -hmm. tear open a, a big hole, all the air goes yeah. out and you have instant decompression. Yeah, but no, because the Russians reported that the plane slowed down to about 200 kilometers per hour initially and then crashed. It didn't just fall out of the, fall sky. Out of the sky there and then. Before we get further on that, we have another call on the line. I'm just going to go ahead and take it. Hi. Yes, uh, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to get with you on the actual name of that movie. It's Jaffa of uh, the Orange Clockwork, because there's a lot of other YouTube videos called Jaffa. So I just wanted to get back with you on that. Okay, no problem. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, thanks for the show, guys. All right. Okay. Bye. 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 I think we need to get Kent over here. That wasn't Kent. Oh, was the other? Oh, right. I didn't give his name. Uh, I think it's... I can't remember his name. I don't think he hasn't got so, a name. Um, what would have been the motive? Or maybe go on with the, well, the black box. Uh, yeah, so before. instant decompression, they kind of tend to, they try to conflate instant decompression with destruction of the black box, or the, that's what renders the black box useless. Uh, instant, decompression, that. <laughs> instant decompression has poses serious problems for the passengers and for the plane itself, the, the structure of the plane, right? So it's a big hole and people get sucked out or suffocate or whatever. But the black box is designed for it, like you said, it's designed to withstand uh, all sorts of stresses because oh, yeah. it's the one thing that's left afterwards. But as Neil was saying, they're priming, they're priming everybody to not expect anything from this because it seems to us that based on previous crashes, and the one I'm thinking of here specifically is the Air France flight that they disappeared uh, flying from Rio, I think, to Paris yes. in 2009. AF-447. Yeah. AF-447, yeah. And I, was, I wrote an article on that at the time, and um, it, uh, I looked at all of the data because they shared the data from the, from the black boxes or part of the data from the black boxes. It was, in fact, it was only partially uh, shared, the information, but the information that was made public revealed a host of different uh, um, details, all of which were very instructive about what was actually happening to the plane and what happened to the plane in, in some kind of a catastrophic situation or a catastrophic failure of uh, the systems on the plane, uh, specifically what systems go down first. Yeah. And this is, we're talking here about like within uh, either milliseconds or, or, or seconds of each other, and it shows a kind of cascade of different failures of systems, and that can then be analyzed to see, uh, in the case of, for example, if they're talking about a missile taking down MH17, uh, that would give some indication of maybe where the missile struck, mm. or if it was a missile at all, because, you know, there may be some differences, because what we've put forward as, as a hypothesis in the absence of any evidence that anybody fired a missile at that plane, that there was perhaps a bomb on it because bombs on airliners are more common even than missiles shooting on airliners. But you know the security right now in airports is so stringent that I don't know how you can put a bomb in a, in a plane. In 2014? Well, security is one way that you would put a bomb on the plane. Where did the, the plane take off? <laughs> well, yeah, it took off at the one airport that 
we know Mossad has a long history with. It's really intelligence, or yeah. We have it on good information that Mossad slash Israeli government has its own exclusive use of a hangar and apron at Schiphol Airport. Or MH17. Giving the means, again, if such an such were the case if there was a bomb on board rather than our, our main point though is that there is no evidence for it being a missile nobody saw a missile nobody saw a missile trail uh the data that we have got comes from russian satellite and radar imagery the american that says doesn't it point to a missile either the americans had a satellite over the area according to um the Russians, which is believable given what we know about the NSA spying on the entire world with their satellites, and their satellites can provide very high-resolution images right down to ground level. So if they had a satellite over the area, which is quite likely, they have data on what happened to it. But guess what? The State Department, Jane Psaki and her little um, minion, whatever her name is, Maria, <laughs> Maria Hart, are telling the world that... Uh, no, we can't share that data because... Uh, There's no uh, sign. Well, because it's secret data. Oh, oops, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> it's, uh, it's secret data and we can't tell you. We can just tell you basically what we think and that there was a missile. But do you have any data? We can't tell you if we have data or not. We're just telling you that our data suggests that there was a missile. But can you share what the nature of that data is? No, because it's secret data. But, okay. they said, if you go to social media... Exactly. You see that everyone's talking about it being a missile. Yes. Therefore, that's, it was that's missile. evidence, isn't it? Well, it is, and common sense. That's what they've cited yeah. as common sense. In the absence of, for whatever reason, the CIA or the NSA providing this high-resolution image, images or even video of what was happening over that area when it came down, in the absence of that, because they're not willing to share it for whatever reason, they say everybody should rely on social media, YouTube, Facebook, and common sense. It's common sense that Putin did it because everybody knows Putin shot JFK, killed, uh, tried to kill Pope John Paul in 1982, and also uh, <laughs> and he shot Franz Ferdinand, and he also shot. Uh, well, he didn't shot. He was. Um, he didn't shoot him. He was. Um, but he was instrumental in the death of our Lord. And uh, <laughs> so let's assume, for a minute, that Mossad put a bomb in MH17 before he took off from Schiphol Airport in Holland, what would be the motive? Well, first of all, distracted, distracted attention away from the Israeli for a good week there. Oh, good time. The Israeli, uh, they launched their operation into Gaza, direct tank invasion uh, that day. Perfect timing. Mm-hmm. It was very good timing, yeah. But that alone wouldn't, wouldn't cut it. No, it's bigger than that. Well, it was demonization of Putin. Suddenly this blew the whole, as Yat said, it blew the whole Ukraine situation and Russia's interfering in Ukraine and trying to help the people there who are trying to assert their independence. It made that an international uh, situation. It, it brought the world's attention to it and made it internationalize that conflict in the context of Russia being completely evil for in some way or for largely being responsible for shooting down of this plane because they supplied the weapons for the rebels to shoot down the plane. Why the rebels would want to shoot down a plane, nobody knows. Uh, but again, we said there's no evidence for any of it. Um, That's interesting. Nonetheless. Let's follow this uh, interesting theory. If it's valid, it means that, I mean, you don't place a bomb in a plane overnight. It requires planning 
timing, a lot of intelligence, a lot of resources. So it will mean that uh, Mossad planned the bombing not long after, not long before the very beginning of the operation, already knowing in advance that they would have to create a diversion along the path, maybe during the ground invasion with tanks, mm -hmm. and then implemented a few weeks after the beginning of the operation, this diversion maneuver, bringing down MH17. Mm. I think if you look at the result of it, it that and more goes into their thinking. If you look at the result of it, it distracted attention away from the Israeli attack on Gaza and it, it, also, it also demonized Putin Yes, in a really serious way. It, it ramped up the propaganda offensive against Putin by the West. So if you're going to look at uh, plausible culprits for it, then you look at Israel and the West and U.S. specifically because it's the U.S. that has most invested in turning Putin into evil incarnate and this was one attempt to do that via the media and via this event. So it also happened the day after the conclusion of the BRICS summit in Brazil yeah. in which Putin was there for two days with all the leaders from South America, the leaders of BRICS, Brazil, China, India and so on. And they created, well, they set up a number of deals, among which are the creation of what has the potential to become uh, an alternative to the IMF. Exactly. When you're getting there, you're talking, you're stepping on serious toes. every toe that is invested. It's beyond just investment in, you know, bombing the crap out of Gaza <clears throat> or to fight or whatever. You're stepping really, on some yeah. very big psychopathic toes. Yeah. Because the IMF is one of the main tools the Western elites use to, to keep the world. other countries into slavery. Yeah, basically, it's yeah, a very fundamental yeah. tool and destructive. Debt slavery is arguably the the key in this information war. I mean, when when you get to the level of money and how money is created, you, it's almost the, the realm in which physical control of other people, subjecting them using violence and weapons, blurs into information in the sense that money is just paper, money nowadays is just numbers on a computer screen, and the decision to create the money and to use a faint of sleight of hand and a bit of trickery to balance the books and makes it look like that's how it's always been and that's normal to just create money out of thin air, literally. That's pure information. And who holds the the cartel power on that is who has all the interest in the whole world in creating situations like they did with MH17. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. There's a, if I understand your reasoning, there's a strong correlation between the different levies, le levels of power in this world, military, economic, financial, information, propaganda, media, and uh, it seems that at the top, there's a collision between those different uh, domains of power. Absolutely, they all, you know, yeah. Um, I just want to get back before we kind of call it quits tonight, I um, want to get back to, because one of our, the premises or the kind of topics of our show was, um, was, you know, the Mossad and Israel and how it has wielded and wields vastly disproportionate power on the world stage and has contributed significantly to the course of, you know, modern history. And um, But just on that topic, uh, 
there was a PNAC document from 1986 called A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm. And at uh, PNAC is the project for a new American century that, you know, the neocons in the U.S. that are kind of were involved with the whole 9-11 business and the clash of civilizations and the projection of American power around the world and going into Iraq and all that kind of stuff. But this document produced in 1986 was a study group led by Richard Perle and it was, it was produced for Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who was then at the time 1986 the Prime Minister of Israel. And um, so the, the title, A Clean Break, A New Strategy for Securing the Realm, was all about how, um, it was all about how Israel could retool or re, uh, reinvent itself in the Middle East and deal with all of the situation in the Middle East to secure its future, essentially. So it was essentially a, a U.S.-sponsored, albeit by Israel firsters in the U.S., but for, for Netanyahu and how to... You know what had to be done going forward, type of thing. Guideline, and um, it's just interesting because there's a few points on it that let me get clear. This document has been followed <clears throat> quite, you know, mostly <clears throat> to the letter almost to, um, since then because it pointed out that um, well, the introduction uh, three points, uh, and it was rather than pursuing a comprehensive peace with the entire Arab world, Israel should, should work jointly with Jordan and Turkey to contain, destabilize, and roll back those entities that are threats. Um, now, those entities that uh, are, are threats to Israel then was Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. And um, the other, other aspects that were changing the nature of relations with the Palestinians and reserving the right of hot pursuit, they called it, anywhere within Palestinian territory, um, and promoting alternatives to Arafat's leadership. So, um, I mean, Arafat went by the wayside, apparently yeah. poisoned by polonium, and an alternative was Hamas. Um, they also talked about... Uh, They also talked about um, essentially waging a proxy war against Syria by, um, they just called it a proxy war, but that's exactly what's happened. Sure. And it ties into the Free Syrian Army and the Al-Nusra Front and the ISIS or ISIL in Iraq now, those entities that have sprung up that came from Syria. This document specifically said that, that they, as in Israel and the U.S., I suppose, would get together to finance or promote or fund or create a proxy army to invade and destabilize Syria and to promote, um, to, in the media, to promote the allegations of Syria's weapons of mass destruction. And they also talked about... Um, But remaking Iraq, breaking Iraq up in three different countries, I sense. I mean, wow. uh, it's uh, when, when you read the details of it, it's it's just, and then you think back over the past, you know, five or six, well, since 2003, really, since the invasion of Iraq, you see that um, that this was a blueprint in 1996 for what has happened today, and it was in the interest 
of securing Israel's position in the Middle East, taking out Arab regimes, Arab governments in the Middle East that were a threat to Israel, that weren't going to play ball is really way. Yeah. And it more or less spells out exactly what has happened since then. 18 years ago. Yeah, and that was for, essentially for Israel. And it involved, ultimately, obviously 9-11 is involved, but it also involved them, um, well, 9-11 is referred to in the other PNAC document, uh, uh, where they refer to a new Pearl Harbor. Um, and, um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's, it's, it, it involved uh, 9-11, Iraq, uh, Syria. They don't mention Libya specifically, but Syria and, uh, and Lebanon and dealing with the Palestinian situation. What is interesting as well, it raises the question of who's putting who's... Uh Strings. Is yeah. it Israel who's pulling the string of the U.S. or is it U.S. pulling the strings of Israel or a bit of both? Because here we have a document that seems to originate from uh, U.S. edits, Richard Pearl, and that is giving basically the defining the policy of Israel for the following decades. Yeah. By well, actually, they, they say specifically, you know, uh, paralleling serious behavior by establishing the precedent that Syrian territory is not immune to attacks emanating from Lebanon by Israeli proxy forces. Israeli proxy forces. What was shitting as well is the, the euphemistic way they describe their plans, an alternative to Yasser Arafat, and A, they killed Yasser Arafat with polonium, mm -hmm. which is a signature of Mossad operation, and then they created Hamas, um, which was the alternative or, or to PLO, the organization directed by uh, by Arafat. Yeah, and it's uh, yeah they they basically turned on Arafat when he turned to peace, and that couldn't happen. So it creates something else to be able to engage in what Joe described as the hot pursuit, and even on that front, Hamas is was. It's basically been replaced by other proxies behind them because Hamas, in turn, turns to peace because that's naturally where things always end up going. Mm. Uh, no matter how many times Israel will recreate a scenario where they come up with a new, darker, scarier bogeyman, uh, everything naturally wants to go back to peace. It's human nature. Yeah. And that's how you reconcile, uh, reconcile this apparent paradox that Hamas on one side on one hand, was created by Mossad, but on the other hand, it was democratic. He was elected by the people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he defends globally. Overall, he defends the interests of Palestinian people. Yeah, this this document written written by Richard Pearl and other uh, neocons in 1996 says specifically uh, the effort can focus on removing Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq, which is an important Israeli strategic strategic objective. Done. as a means of foiling Syria's regional ambitions, and then contain Syria, drawing attention to its weapons of mass destruction and using Israeli proxy forces to attack, attack Syria. Israeli proxy forces being Al-Qaeda. Yeah, and uh, ISIS. Uh... Yeah. The, the main thing is that they will keep trying to divide people. I mean, Hamas is their ostensible enemy, yet it couldn't have happened according to Yasser Arafat, without Israeli help. It couldn't have come about. And then you look at Hamas today, and 
uh, they're the enemy, and yet in 2012, Hamas leadership relocated, and they went to Qatar. Oh. And on the way out, they have been in Syria, on, pretty much on the way out. They made the official Hamas line vis-a-vis this proxy war by Israel against Syria is that we support the Free Syrian Army. So what's going on there? You see the triangulation of Israel's interests being met in both cases. I'm surprised that uh, in this document there's no mention of Iran. They do mention Iran, but it's often uh, kind of eventually, you know, to, their, their nexus was Iraq, Iran, Syria, Lebanon, um, and, and Palestine, you know. Um, so, but the other little note about this really is that, um, you know, there was one of the peace treaties that was signed out, which was the, uh, the Oslo Accords in September 1993. And, um, I think that was the only, the only Israeli leader that ever had the possibility of, um, of, of really, you know, pursuing a peaceful solution to the, to the, the conflict in Israel-Palestine. Yitzhak Rabin? Yitzhak Rabin, yeah, in 1983. That's the famous kind of picture of yeah, Arafat and Rabin, Bill Clinton on the White House lawn, um, you know, shaking hands and stuff. And shortly after that, um, Rabin was murdered in 1995 by when he was the, uh, when he was the, the Prime Minister. Uh, and he was murdered by, supposedly by a uh, right-wing, radical, right-wing, orthodox Jew, uh, a guy, what was his name? I can't think of the name here. Um, and then Benjamin Netanyahu became prime minister after him. He did, yeah. Hmm. Well, no, immediately after him, uh, Shimon Peres, who was the, the vice or whatever, yeah. he became prime minister, but that set up uh, eventually the, the real right-winger, uh, you know, Psychopaths to, to come to power. So Rabin was the last one, and he was he was shot supposedly by well he was shot by a uh, his name was Yigal Amir, a radical right wing Orthodox Jew. But it came out uh, afterwards that <clears throat> this guy Amir uh, was being handled by a member of um, Shin Bet, a guy who was um, working for Israeli intelligence and supposedly as the narrative goes in all of these cases he was there to kind of like try and keep tabs on these really radical right wingers these groups extremist groups in Israel uh, but so yeah he had a friend uh, who was you know posing as a, a member of this right wing radical organization uh, and was essentially handling him who was a member of Shin Bet and um, he uh, it turned out eventually that uh, well, it was exposed that he was a member of Israeli intelligence. This this guy who was taken to trial, supposedly for failing to prevent the assassination, because he was meant to be keeping tabs on this guy. But it came out as well that he uh, he was overheard saying, and this was reported by an Israeli journalist, that he was overheard uh, telling the guy to be a man and go ahead and kill him. So he was hmm. far from trying to stop him, stop him doing this. This seems to be an operation to actually take out Rabin because Rabin was threatening to actually sign an act, a realistic, uh, plausible peace agreement with the Palestinians. So the conclusion there is that the Israeli elites behind the scenes do not want any kind of a solution to the Palestinian, an equitable solution to the Palestinian uh, 
problem. Uh, I don't know what they want. Well, Maybe they want them all dead. What is it what they want? I mean, this securing the realm, 20-year-old thinking strategically in, over the course of decades suggests that they do think in these kind of long term, they have a strategy, they have a goal behind all this. I mean, what could it be? <laughs> it feels like a totally unrealistic global domination. More and more control, more and more power, more and more do domination. Global, so when they said realm, oh, yeah. they have in mind the whole realm. Yeah, no, look, I, I might go too far here, but uh, as Joe said uh, a few minutes ago, today France is not controlled by French elite or by some French oligarch. Today France is controlled by a Zionist lobby. So I think we can say that now in 2014, the sphere of influence of the Zionist elite goes far beyond the Israeli borders Absolutely. and far beyond the Middle East borders. And it's not it's even, worldwide. It's not even Israeli at that level. It's not Israeli. It's not <coughs> Jewish. Uh, they're just kind of used. It's it's uh, you're reaching the top of the, yeah. the apex. Or of, I of, doubt the, the people hermit. up there are practicing Judaism. No. The top of the apex in any form. Same. The top of the apex, <laughs> the apex of the pyramid. Uh, at the top levels of power, these people obviously just realize that religions and ideologies are just a means Tools. to an end, mm -hmm. and um, their goal seems to be just complete and absolute power and control of everything that happens everywhere. And they seem to also get a real kick out of death and destruction and murder. And that's the world we live in. And uh, But right now there's an opportunity, especially with events like in Palestine and uh, with this new Cold War business for people to really see what's going on, at least to some extent, and to, to not fall for the bullshit and the lies anymore because there are sources out there that can provide, provide a, a, a different... Uh, viewpoint on it with actual evidence as yeah. opposed to common sense and social media and for people to really make a decision and make a choice uh, for what they're going to go with. They're going to go with barbarity and brutality and the, the condoning of the murder of children or they're going to stand up for their humanity and the humanity of, of, of other people on the planet against this psychopathic elite who seem to never really have had any humanity within them. Yeah, I think uh, as we said, it's a it's a, there are several layers of war. There's a war in Palestine, I mean, a very asymmetric war, as they call it. But maybe more globally, there is a war for our conscience. And one, one of the most fundamental aspects of our conscience is hurting for others. And what's the, the most serious case may, may be the, the suffering and the death of innocent children. So when a human being stops feeling for the suffering of an innocent children, he sure sacrifice one part of his conscience. When he makes this, con this choice, conscious or not, one part of his conscience dies. Yep, that's a choice before people right now. Um, so get making, get making your choices there. But, you know, inform yourself, uh, read up and stuff, and keep a watch on the skies and on the planet because there's all sorts of other stuff going on as well. Uh, that are probably associated with the chaos in the human realm. There's mounting chaos uh, on a geological level on our planet, in case you haven't noticed. So it's very important to keep an eye on all of that as well. 
and enjoy the show such as it is, if you can manage to. So, I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. We hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks to our listeners, to our callers, and to our chatters. And we will be back next week with another show on another topic. We hope you will tune in. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Have a good one. Bye-bye.